Support for this podcast is brought to you by this summer's must-read novel, Harry's Trees by John Cohen. If you only read one novel this summer, and really you should read more than one novel this summer, read Harry's Trees by John Cohen. After the loss of his wife, Harry Crane plans to lose himself in the remote woods of Pennsylvania's endless mountains. But fate intervenes in the form of a wise old librarian who sets in motion a series of unlikely events that lead Harry back into the light. This uplifting story is a reminder of the enduring presence of goodness in the world, even when it seems dark. Discover the magic of Harry's Trees today. Download the audiobook or pick up a copy wherever books are sold. Like a bookstore. Or an online bookseller. But go to your local bookstore. Pick up Harry's Trees from a bookstore. Forever! Hi, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writer's Panel. As I've said before, I created the show because I wanted to know how the TV that I love gets made. I love having the conversations with industry professionals about the process and business of writing television. Today we have a really terrific roundtable for you with Ken Biller, who's the creator of Genius, Maggie Mull, a great comedy writer who's been on Family Guy and Life in Pieces, and David Graziano, a wonderful drama writer who's been on American Gods, Southland, Lie to Me, a whole bunch of shows. It's a really great conversation. Before any of that, I've teased for the past six months that I have some projects to announce, and I'm excited to finally get to announce one of them. It's called Hexwives. It's a new comic book from Vertigo Comics. Vertigo, of course, was the home 25 years ago of Sandman and Preacher and Fables and like these great creator-owned books that for many of us uh, were inspirational and aspirational. Like these were big stories being told in the comic book format, which is a unique storytelling mode. Um, and I'm finding that more and more with Hexwives. So here's what's happening. Um, Hexwives is, the pitch is, what if Samantha Stevens from Bewitched uh, were not a suburban housewife by choice? Uh, she has all of this power, and she's here cooking dinner and cleaning for her husband. Uh, so what happens when she starts to realize that that is not who she is? In fact, she's a sort of immortal witch, part of a, the head of a powerful coven, who are her neighbors um, and who are all sort of starting to wake up and realize that indeed they are stronger together. Uh, that's the pitch. And Vertigo has been so amazing in their support of this book. They are an absolute pleasure to work with. Hexwives is part of a big relaunch of Vertigo Comics, uh, which will all be happening in the fall. But we'll be talking about it at Comic-Con, and we'll start to leak stuff out in the next few months. Um, and this relaunch is really cool and exciting. Uh, they have seven new books. They're all these really smart, high-concept books uh, from writers like Eric Esquivel and Brian Hill and Zoe Quinn, um, who, you know, the like the famous gamer, and um, Rob Sheridan, who is the art director for Nine Inch Nails, um, Tina Horn, who is the host and producer of Why Are People Into That podcast. Uh, it's a sex advice podcast. Uh, she's a sex activist and educator. So it's all a bunch of like really interesting people with strong points of view with things to say. And I'm lucky just to be part of this hanging on for dear life and hoping they don't realize that I'm just a television hack. They're all really smart and contemporary feeling books. They're all, they all feel like books that the creators of them 
we're compelled to write. Um, go to vertigocomics.com. Check out the descriptions of these books because they're all really cool. On Hexwives, uh, it was important to me to be, if not the only male voice, sort of in the minority. This is a book about women, and this is a book about powerful women. And it was important to me to not only get that right, but you know, to have input that is not just my own ideas. And in fact, I got really lucky uh, in that when I told this to Vertigo, they were more than amenable. Uh, I wound up with these really amazing editors, Molly Mahan and Maggie Howell, who are uh, everything good in the book comes from them. Like, I'm going to be saying this for the next year and a half about how all of my collaborators are making this book great, but it's really true. And I'm not being humble about this. I actually feel bad about it. I wish I had more great ideas in the book, uh, but I came up with the premise, so I have to write it. Um, but Molly and Maggie have been instrumental in get, making this right, getting this right, uh, making this a book that feels emotionally true and honest. Uh, part of the book is about the insidious ways in which men control women. And so the other key collaborator of there, of which there are many, uh, on this book has been my wife, where, uh, you know, she's been with me on this journey, and I wander into the room, and I'm like, hey, tell me, tell me the terrible ways I try to control you. Uh, and she tells me, and I learn something both for the book and for my life. Um, the artist on the book is Mirka Andalfo, who is this incredible Italian artist. She worked on Shade the Changing Man, uh, the annual. That's out there. You should check it out. She worked on the DC Bombshells books, and she hasn't done a regular book like this. Um, yet in her career, and I think this is going to be a huge coming out for her. Uh, she's just knocking it out of the park. And the colorist, Marissa Louise, I cannot say enough good things about. Um, as good as Mirka is, and as okay as I am, Marissa is just elevating every single thing with her colors. She's adding texture and shading to this book, which, you know could have been a blunt instrument, and she's giving it a lot of depth and a lot of soul. Uh, I, I'm excited for you to see her work on this book. Uh, I also have to say, this is terrifying for me. This is the first writing I've done, the first professional writing I've done without my writing partner, Ben Acker, in 15 years. And uh, Ben, when I came to him with this and said, do you want to do this? He said, I'm glad to, but it seems like you got it. So if you want me on it, I'm fine. If not, try it. Uh, so I have to thank him for that. And uh, at one point, he checked in with me on the book and said, how's it going? And I said, it's really hard. And he said, well, sure, it should be two times as hard. And that is not the case. It is 100 times as hard. Uh, you know, not having been there, again, we've been working together for 15 years. He has the answers. He is a guy with amazing ideas. And my job with him is just to pick out the good one. On this book, I have to come up with the good ideas. Uh, so I'm lucky to have the collaborators that I have to help me through that process. Um, the book will be out in October. Uh, I'm going to talk about it incessantly. It is about witches. Uh, I'm obsessed with pop culture witches. Bewitched was one of my favorite television shows growing up, not just because I had a huge crush on Elizabeth Montgomery, uh, but Andorra is a great character. Um, but pop culture witches are so interesting to me because they, there are no, like there are set tropes for a witch, but we don't, it's not like Frankenstein, right? There's no one story. And so 
every witch story sort of adds to the tropes of that. Um, whether it's the witches of Eastwick or Wizard of Oz or Sabrina the Teenage Witch, like every take on witches plays with the existing tropes and adds something new to it. So one, I'll be doing a panel at San Diego Comic-Con called Pop Culture Witches, and I'll tell you more about that as we get closer to it. Two, on this podcast, I'm going to start interviewing people involved with pop culture witches. Um, I love to hear about how people approach the witch character, witch tropes, witch stories. Uh, so I'm going to be tracking down people who have worked in that uh, area and just doing short interviews with them. I hope it's interesting to you. It's certainly interesting to me. I've been lucky that you've indulged me this long uh, on the Writers Panel podcast. But I'll say this. If you love a pop culture witch, if you have someone that you think I should talk to about pop culture witches, um, if you are a practicing Wiccan, hit me up. Uh, I'm fascinated to talk to you. Uh, find me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. It's like the color, only more so. Or find the uh, write me on Facebook, facebook.com slash TV Writers Panel. Uh, and tell me who I should talk to. What are the pop culture witches that you love? Um, what do you think about witch tropes? And if you're an artist, and I know we haven't put out any images yet, I want to see what you think this book is going to be. Uh, put out some Hexwives fan art. Uh, I'd really like to get sort of underrepresented or unknown artists involved in this book, and fan art is a great way to get noticed. Um, look, I have a hundred issues of Hexwives stories that I want to tell. I'm counting on you guys to buy the book so that I get to tell those stories. But um, please know that it, it really is a, a story I'm passionate about telling, and I hope you'll get on, involved with it. Again, you'll be hearing more about it for the next eight months. <laughs> Sorry. Here's today's podcast. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! This is how a podcast starts, you guys. Right. <laughs> uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you go around the table and introduce yourself so the listener knows what your voice sounds like, and tell us uh, what you're working on now and some of the other places on television we've seen your name, starting with you, Maggie. Okay. Uh, I'm Maggie Mull, and I currently write on Family Guy. Just started there a little bit ago, and... I'm coming from Life in Pieces. I'm coming from uh, the critically acclaimed Dads. Absolutely. And uh, I do cartoons occasionally for The New Yorker. Oh, that's so much cooler than anything <laughs> I've ever done. Uh, I'm Ken Biller, and I have been for the last uh, couple of years doing uh, a show called Genius, the first series of uh, which uh, focused on Albert Einstein, and the second season has focused on Pablo Picasso. We're going to do a third season about Mary Shelley. Um, and earlier in my career, I've worked on shows like Star Trek Voyager and uh, a show that I co-created called Perception on TNT, um, uh, a and, show called Legends. Yeah, uh, Legend of the Seeker, we should mention. Because and Legend of the Seeker. People which is really a, love that people show. People love that show. It's a, it might, In fact, it, for many, many years, it, it was my son's favorite show, and he continues to kind of uh, you know watch the DVDs. And I went into that show kicking and screaming, and it ended up being a great job. I ended up loving it. It was really fun. That's great. Yeah. And David? My name is David Grazia. And I am in that beautiful in-between place between shows where I have a job to go to. 
Sure. Uh, in about a week, and I've been enjoying my time off. I just got off a show called Jack Ryan on Amazon. It's going to drop uh, sometime in the next couple of months. The late summer, right? Late summer. And uh, I'm going on to a Netflix show called What If. Um, but And you've worked on a ton of shows that people know and love. American yeah, Gods, Southland, Lie to Me. American Southland, Gods, Lie to Me. Yeah, a lot of, too many to count over um, the years. And Terra Nova. Terra Nova. <laughs> which, if there's been a running theme yeah. over these six years of this podcast, it's been Terra Nova comes up and we have like tracked right? its rise and fall. Have you, <laughs> maybe <laughs> last writer have you, have you had Brandon and Renee come <laughs> yeah, talk about Terra Nova? There you uh, go. Fury and uh, like yeah. everyone who worked on that show. I, I, I worked on the Brandon and Renee iteration of Terra Nova. It was fun. I do want to talk about the thing that you are working on now so david take a break um and so uh ken we're talking about you gearing up for season three sure. of genius um i'm actually avoiding gearing up for a little while i'm i'm, I'm, yes. I'm gearing up to gear up you're winding down <laughs> yeah. too yeah, yeah. Uh, and you may have a little break but certainly because you already know the subject matter you have to start thinking about this sure. show um so let's get into specifics on that why mary shelley and and you know, yeah. Well, what, do, what do you start to think about when you put together a season of Genius, which is a season told, you know, a story told in one season? Yeah. So, um, so it's something we, when I say we, the other writers on my show, the people at Nat, Nat Geo and um, Imagine, who I work with, talk about kind of incessantly. It's a little bit of a parlor game. You know, anywhere I go, any kind of dinner party, everyone says, who, you know, you know who would be a great genius? <laughs> and um, so I think that, uh, you know, the first season was kind of obvious. It was Einstein. You know, if you, if you, you know, Einstein is literally a synonym for genius. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was kind of a no-brainer. And I think in the second season, there was a desire to prove the concept to say that, you know, uh, we could tell an interesting, compelling, dramatic, true story about a genius, but um, we want to uh, um, avoid doing another scientist because we want to let the audience know that this is not just a show about mm -hmm. scientists, it's a show about geniuses. And so um, Picasso became kind of another obvious choice for sort of I, so sort of three criteria. I think at least there w there was in, for the second season. You know, the first was, is the person undeniably a genius? And the second uh, is what, what certainly it was for Nat Geo for the second season. Is it you know Nat Nat Geo is an international brand, mm. and and these shows um, they play day and date in 174 countries around the world. So they very much wanted to have a figure that was known around the world that you would hear the name whether you lived in Egypt or uh, Venezuela and you would know oh Pablo Picasso was an, an extraordinary painter you might not know anything about him but right. you probably knew that yeah. and and the third thing which was the most important for me of course as a storyteller is like did the person live <laughs> a big enough interesting enough life that you could tell 10 hours of drama about that person so Picasso really kind of fit that bill. And then for the third season, so, so, you know, so we've talked about literary geniuses and, 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 uh, you know, visual artists and maybe political geniuses and obviously scientific geniuses. And, um, there was a lot of, uh, um, pressure, internal pressure of, that we were putting on ourselves, in fact, to say, uh, well, we, we have to do a woman. We've just done two mm -hmm. European white males and um so we talked about a lot of different women and many of the obvious ones you know marie curie well we, we marie curie was a character in einstein and it's kind mm -hmm. of a lot of the same territory and um mary shelley's always somebody i've been really fascinated with and she's somebody that we actually talked about for season two um and i think that for the network to be honest that um 
Mary Shelley is not a person that if you went all around the world, everybody would say, oh, I know who that is. But everybody knows who Frankenstein is. Right. So I think they feel like Frankenstein is something promotable for them. And obviously mm-hmm. that will be a part of the show. Um, I, and I want to just ask one more follow up on sure. that. Like, at what point do you and your room start talking about the next season? Or is it just a push it's kind of through? It's kind of constant. You know, we've yeah. talked about the fourth season and the fifth season. Now, we don't know if there will be a fourth right. and a fifth season, but we, but before we arrived at Picasso, we, uh, um, we went through a long process with Nat Geo while we were still making the first season, you know, um, researching to various degrees, mm-hmm. many, many, many figures. And, you know, there was a l- little bit of, um, uh, it was difficult to arrive at a consensus. You know, we 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 went down the the rabbit hole with a, several different figures before yeah. we ended hmm. up kind of settling oh, on Picasso. Have you ever thought about doing a military genius like Genghis Khan? Yeah, we could. Yeah, we talked. We talked about doing Napoleon. Right. We've talked about. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know enough about Genghis Khan, but yeah, we've definitely talked about those kind of things. We've talked about. We talked about Shea. Um, we talked about um, uh, doing Castro. You know, we talked about. Hmm. You know, there are lots of different ways kind of into it um and we talk about a, lo- a lot about what does genius mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know what, what makes someone a genius I, I always say to people the show is not called remarkable it's called genius because because <laughs> there are lots of remarkable figures yeah. and it was difficult to, to 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 find a um to find a woman not because there are not many 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 brilliant women in in history but because of history and because right. of of uh, uh, the way history is counted, because stories. of the way history is told, we don't know a lot of these stories. And what I'm really one of the things I'm really proud of about genius is that even though we've gotten a lot of criticism of doing these white European males, if you actually watch the show, what you see that we that we do is we really tell the stories of all of these women, women scientists and mm-hmm. women artists who were swirling in the world of these great figures that you've had heard of and almost kind of ask the question, well, why haven't you heard of these people? That's interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. I want to uh, move over. And Maggie, you, as you said, just started on Family Guy. Yes. Um, and you mentioned it is a show that you've loved. Always. Since I was 12, I watched Family Guy. So when this opportunity yeah it is crazy <laughs> it's job. really crazy um it was sort of like there are maybe two shows the simpsons and family guy that i grew up watching like i oddly never watched seinfeld even though everyone i know you know that's the show they grew up watching um but for me it was always animation so when the job presented itself it just it was like i can't not do this this is i've been watching the show my whole life i mean most of my vocabulary has come from it, <laughs> which is, so, yeah. So tell me about walking into that room where, like, these are the people, and they've had a pretty consistent staff for a lot yeah, of this Yeah, there are people the that have been there actually since the beginning before its initial cancellation, which is just wild. I mean, that's 20 years almost. Yeah. Um, but I knew a lot of them uh, coming from dads, which was Alex Sulkin mm-hmm. and Wellesley Wilde, who were both like Family Guy uh, writers. And it's there's a you know I was familiar socially, but there's such a different culture every time you enter a room. And yeah. um, I actually came in like guns blazing, and the next day <laughs> had to be like, you know what, I'm gonna tone this down really? and. Um, kind of like learn the language first Mm -hmm. like I think every room has its own language it's like an orchestra you know and and some people you even have to learn about like the silences because they have their own meaning too and sort of like when to pitch a joke especially Mm -hmm. because you end up doing it at the same time as someone and it's it's a whole thing so um that's really interesting though that you came in 
guns blazing because that that does seem unusual like yeah. and, and you were coming from a room where i think that was not the case either where it was very loud and sort of like competitive um well yeah maybe because i'd been at life in pieces for three years i felt very comfortable there mm-hmm. um and i remember when i started there i was very quiet and uh Justin Adler, in all his kindness, even pointed it out very kindly and helped me, like, open up. But when I got to Family Guy, it's sort of like going to prison, where you're like, I have to stab someone in order to... (laughs) Or just write her in the place. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, I need to earn their respect. So I... uh, Maybe what I mean by guns blazing was just I I came in attempting some confidence. And... uh, it's the past few weeks have sort of been this like waltz, <laughs> awkward waltz between confidence and insecurity. And oh, I, I no. think that's probably just the writer's experience. <laughs> I, I think that's true. So, Absolutely. yeah. Um, but it's amazing. It's mm. amazing to go to work every day with these people whose jokes I, you know, use in my daily life, whose jokes sure. I plagiarize. <laughs> right. So what do you... What do you think? And I know it's early going, but what do you think you're adding to that room? Uh, well, it's interesting because they didn't have women, right? They had Cherry, who was there for yeah. a very long time. And then she and was left. Kind of the only one for yes, a long time, Yes, she was the right? only one out of, I want to say, 20 writers, 21. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. she left. And this year they brought in me and another girl. Um, and so I think in some ways there's this, like, expectation that we're there to add (laughs) like a feminine Uh, edge, I guess. But I don't feel like you end up on Family Guy because of a feminine edge. You end up there because you're, you know, you have a scatological bend. So I'm still kind of learning what that Mm -hmm. is. And I I also think that takes time. Like if you're a story person or you're a joke person, um, especially on this show, because that's sort of like – how the room's divided most of the time. Um, and I have yet to sort of figure that out. So, That's interesting. Yeah, I like doing both. I don't know. I mean, I imagine it's also a strange thing to be pitching jokes. I mean, part of your sense of humor was formed by yes. these people and yeah. certainly by this show and the tone of this show. Uh, David, I do want to talk about um, Jack Ryan, yeah. which you were most recently on. Um, and did you get, so you guys did two seasons sort of back to back as a, a writer's room? There was a season, uh, done before I got there, uh, uh first season mm-hmm. and, um, they shot that when I came in, they were still editing some of those episodes and, uh, doing some reshoots. Oh, and then, uh, so I came on to season two. So that's an interesting thing, I think, to walk into where, you don't really have a basis for for this show other yeah. than sort of the, the books and the movies, but this had to be something well, different. Well, it's cool because we got to reboot the season in a way. It's a oh, really? totally new – we're treating each season like it's a, a new, you know, Tom Clancy book. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not sticking to the books per se, but, uh, but you know, coming up with a new thing, but rebooting the season from the beginning. And Jack Ryan is, is in season two going to be down in South America. Um. Is this, I mean, looking at the stuff you've done and you've sort of done procedural things, but they are always very character-y and like, I think we know you as like a solid room guy too. Yeah. Um, Was this a comfortable fit for you? Like, is this a world that you're familiar with? It was comfortable in a sense. I I get hired to write a lot of crime. I think it has to do with my last name, but I've written on on, uh, 
soaps over the years. Mm-hmm. I got my start on Felicity. Yeah. I've written on medical dramas. I'm sort of uh, like a studio musician, like a <laughs> muscle a session man. guy. Yeah, I'm a session guy. And, um, and so Jack Ryan was different in the sense that I didn't, I wasn't so well versed on the Clancy canon as some of the other writers on the show, but, uh, but, and, and also the, the CIA, um, hmm. the research that you have to do. I've written a couple of projects that took place in that sphere, but this was much more Carlton Cuse, who is the uh, showrunner, um, has a very, he, he likes things to have a, you know, truth to them and a mm-hmm. verisimilitude. And so the, the CIA stuff, uh, we had uh, tech advisors and, hmm. and people, one of the writers who writes a lot of novels in that uh, arena, Annie Jacobson, who I'm pretty sure was in the CIA herself, <laughs> although she won't cop to it. Um, she, she was very instrumental in, in sort of helping us as, as a team get all the details right of the missions and, oh, and the way things would actually go down. We yeah. had a lot of people that we could call and talk to. And were you... Coming off of, am I right that you were coming off of American Gods? Coming off of American Gods. So yeah. I'm curious to hear, we've had Carlton on, we've had Brian and Michael yeah. on uh, over the years. Yeah. Like, how do these rooms, you've been in so many different rooms yeah. by really strong showrunners, too. Yeah. Like, how was there whiplash going from American Gods to uh, Jack Ryan? Well, how are the rooms different? How are they the same? Well, I mean, as much as there is a different culture in every room, there's a sort of consistent culture, at least in the world of drama. I mean, Maggie and I are dating. It's kind of funny that, that, you know, like to talk about the comedy world and the drama world, they're very different. Like it's mm-hmm. it's odd uh, to live with a comedy writer and see how <laughs> truly different they are. Period. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> but but this is a lesson for everyone I listening. <laughs> but I mean, in in they they mostly work the same. Most shows have a sin of origin that you have to get over in hmm. breaking the show and approaching the material, and so you have to know that 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 is that what the pitfalls are, um, and. Uh, so and and then you know the rest is just like personality is fitting together. It's like I helped uh, Mike Kelly staff his uh, show that's coming up, uh, What If, and when we were talking about it, I, one of the ways I framed it, putting together the staff is like we're putting together a, a six month dinner party, you know. <laughs> and so who do you want to you want to spend six months with? So mostly it's that it's the dinner party aspect of it where you're going into work every day. Mm-hmm. Um, putting your brain on a table for other people to look at and looking at theirs and 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 sort of wringing them out and see what <laughs> see what comes out. Um, I want to I want to kind of hear about that from all of you guys. You know, you've worked in a lot of big rooms and many rooms and like that idea of putting together the dinner party is really interesting to me and the kind of people you want to populate the room with um I'm curious to hear about who who that is like as based on the rooms you've been in what have you seen that works and who should people try to be in a room? Um, well, I think that, I mean, it, it's going to sound trite, but they should probably try to be themselves. I mean, yeah. the, the um, it, it's pretty obvious sometimes when uh, when you get into a room and people are trying to either kind of adopt a persona or behave <laughs> in a way that or behave in a way that they think is kind of expected. But of course, like any any kind of social situation or social experiment you know that that's human nature right you, you want to fit in in a way mm-hmm. so so people want to fit in and and I think there's a big difference between um, coming in like something Maggie's doing 
you know, um, many, many years into mm-hmm. an already created culture and then doing what, what I've done quite a bit of is starting fresh on, on new shows, mostly because yeah. many of the shows I've done didn't last more than a year. But, um, and starting fresh is challenging. So too. I've done that Absolutely. a lot. And, and what I've, what I've, been, what I've had to do a lot, um, uh, you know, cause I've been fortunate, you know, over the last, say, six to eight, years of is is to put together the room yeah. you know is is to be the guy that's sort of hiring those people and that's a real um it's a real challenge you know you're trying to kind of figure out based on uh, a script that you've read <laughs> mm-hmm. that m- yeah. may or may not be completely written by the person that may have uh, taken them a year yeah <laughs> may, may have taken them a year and a half sure. you know uh and and then you ha- you meet them you know maybe for 45 minutes and you know you just kind of you know feel it out and then you call yeah. other people that they've worked with and you say hey you know is this guy an asshole or is this guy yeah. great and i i think one of the things that i've sort of learned over the years is that um is to not expect everything out of everybody mm-hmm. you know some people are just fantastic in a room they're fantastic at pitching stories and spinning stories and they don't get defensive if you if you don't like something they just come up with something new and they just keep generating and some people are just quieter but but you you would you would be making a mistake not to have them on the team because maybe maybe the two things they say are better than the 25 things that somebody <laughs> else says and maybe when they get on the page they can really sing, and that's yeah. just you know what they do. And so, my the shows that I've that I've run have become I think more and writers who've worked with me may dispute this, but I, I think they've become more and more collaborative over the mm-hmm. uh, collaborative over the over the years. More, I'm much more willing to you know pair people up and have two people go off by themselves and just work on a story for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first started. Because it's the way I learned from Michael Piller on yeah. on Star Trek. It was you know all hands on deck. Every writer was in the room for the story break. The story yeah. break was scheduled. You went at a certain time. You were there for a certain number of hours, and it didn't matter if you were on a script. You you, you know you, you just had to be in the room. And I still like that, but I also sometimes find that the room gets really noisy, and it's become mm-hmm. you know more productive to to take two or three writers and say, why don't you guys go work on this, and you you guys go work on that, and I'll kind of go back and forth and. Hmm. And uh, anyway, I, I completely digressed from the no, question. No, that's really asked, interesting. Um, is there, in rooms that you guys have been in, um, what are mistakes you see being made? What are mistakes you have made maybe early on in your careers? Uh, and what is the stuff that sort of you see your showrunners respond positively to? I think the biggest mistake, and unfortunately it's something we that will come out of Every writer, you know, eventually we all have those days is stubbornness, like, because we're all writers and we all are creators and we all think what we come up with is good or else we wouldn't be doing it. And so sometimes... No one wants to admit they had an ugly baby. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And sometimes in a room you have an idea and you're certain that this is the way the show should go. And, you know, maybe it, it is the right decision, but it doesn't matter. It... Uh, and I think holding on to those darlings um, and being 
stubborn about them in the face of the showrunner, in the face of the other writers in the room, you end up being someone who wastes time. Mm. And to me, it's mm. like the time wasters are the room killers. Um, There's another way of wasting time, too, which is the person who just constantly puts up an impediment. In other words, it's very yeah. easy. It's very easy to criticize an idea. It's very easy to say what's wrong with the idea. Yeah. So what I'm always trying to encourage people to do is say, Pitch okay, if you, if you don't like something, yeah. Pitch either pitch an alternative or pitch a fix. Say say okay, but right. you know don't say no. And so there there are that's um, room etiquette. Good room etiquette. It's yeah. good room. It's totally. good room etiquette. But it's also there there are and and I, but it also can create a lot of um, uh, stress and ill will among the group. You Absolutely. know I, I, what I find sometimes is like I'm like daddy, and so I, I don't know. Everybody's on their best behavior when I'm there, and then when I leave the room, what I uh, what I what I'll usually find out when I do like my post mortem at the end of the season, and I talk to all the writers and I say like, how did it go for you, and what was good and what was bad. I start to hear all these things that nobody wanted to tell me, but there's usually there was usually somebody there was usually somebody in the room that everybody felt like when I wasn't there would just derail everything. Yeah. You know, and and um, and and those, you know, they're sort of the naysayers, you know, it, and it's by the way, it's, I, I can fall into it, too. It's very easy to go. Well, that doesn't work. Yeah. You know, it is. but and I think a lot of us it, do it without realizing it yeah. is an easy yeah. thing to fall and, into. And it's OK to have an opinion and it's OK right. to say, you know, something, you know, you don't like something. Right. But um, it can be constructive. But but there's you have to try to figure out yeah. a way to, to 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 make it constructive. And and one of the things that I have to do a lot of times is is I'm sure you've both done it too, is, you know, to kind of referee, you know, mm -hmm. when you've got two people who really feel, I, I want people to disagree. I like them to disagree because I think it, it, it makes stuff yeah. better, but you have to, you have to sort of figure out a way to, to kind of orchestrate and shape that disagreement so that it just doesn't become uh, people digging in their heels, yeah. like right. Maggie said, and just being incredibly stubborn and hanging on to, yeah. hanging on to it. It's not about ego. Sometimes you have mm -hmm. to listen to the show. Like the, the episode itself needs something that if you just kind of look at the story you're trying to tell, it's not about – it doesn't mean the person's idea wasn't great that pitched it and it didn't land for whatever reason. It's just like that's not what that particular episode requires. Mm -hmm. Well, and part of that I imagine is from the showrunner creating a very clear target for you. I mean were there shows that you guys worked on where that target was clear and – did the room respond? Like, was it an easy, easier path? And were there shows you worked on where it was not? Clear? There's a good mix of both. I mean, it implies that a showrunner, even the best showrunner, and I've worked with a lot of really great showrunners, even the best showrunner is still like a blind man on his hands and knees, <laughs> walking, like crawling through the forest trying to find the story. It's just not easy. It right. doesn't matter how much experience you had. John Wells, who, who mm -hmm. you really can't get much more experience than him when I was working with him on Southland, he was writing an episode and, he, and we read it. We gave him some notes and stuff and, and we were clearing out the room for the day. And I just asked him about his experience because he seemed to be a little bit like he had that that first draft kind of <laughs> feeling you get sometimes when things are irking you a little bit. You can't quite figure them out. And he, he just looked at me and he was just like, it just never gets easy. Like I still sit in front of the computer and I'm, right. I'm just like, what am I going to write today? He's done a thousand yeah. hours yeah. of TV. I, I feel still. like every show that I'm on, I'm like, God, this is the hardest yeah. show I've ever yeah. done. <laughs> really? it just, it always, it's always, um, it's hard. They, they may be hard for different reasons. You know, the real challenge, the, the, the genius 
Chinese challenge has been really interesting for me because we were just we were all talking before about Michael Piller and you know the the uh, here's here's what I always say and this is what I learned from Michael Piller and it's what I tell other writers and when I and when I see writers that I've I've just done it recently you know I catch up with people when I'm when I got a little time and we have lunch and they say you know I always say that th- when I'm in the room I always say that thing that you used to say invariably it's something that Michael Piller used to say <laughs> but which which was basically when you're stuck. And I think this is like this is the the, the purest and and best advice you could ever give is is to simply ask the question what would the character do next you know don't decide that at, that the right. end of Act Three is going to be both of the characters stuck on a roof you know with a with a helicopter bearing down on them because then you'll do something mechanical to get those characters onto that it's rooftop just moves. so it's hmm. literally just okay this just happened this is who the person is what would she do next. And now this is a real problem when you're doing what I'm doing now, which is historical drama, when you know what the character did next. (laughs) And sometimes they're doing something that doesn't really make for great drama or great suspense. So you have to kind of figure out a different way to approach it. But, but, you know, I I do think that is the – that's what always – not always, but usually will unstick it. Mm -hmm. And and I think what what David was saying makes a lot of sense about um, the – uh, you know, what does the episode require? Mm-hmm. It's another It's another way of saying, okay, we, we have this set of characters in this circumstance, you know, just trying to figure out what they would believably do. So somebody could pitch a great idea, but you might say, God, you know, I, I, I know this character pretty well. I don't think yeah. this character mm-hmm. would, would do that. Now, then you can disagree yeah. about right. whether or how somebody sure. would behave. But so. at least you're talking about the yeah. character yeah. and not just, like you say, making a Not movie. just a writer's idea. It's yeah. not just like, oh, this would be cool. Absolutely. It's an odd feeling when you're making anything as a creator. Because like, I, I, I make furniture sometimes too. And like when the thing itself suggests something to you mm-hmm. that like you didn't intend, it's, it's, it's weird to realize that you're not supposed to impose yourself on the thing you're yeah. building. Yeah, yeah. But then those are the best times, right? Yeah. Like that's when it's, it's magical. really That's working. when it starts to yeah. take on a life of its own. Um, all right, let's backtrack. Uh, I want to talk about breaking into this business and how you got your start. Maggie, uh, you grew up here in Los Angeles. I did. Uh, you come from show business. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was, I mean, your, your father's an actor and, yes. and a comic and your mother's a performer, a singer, yes. right? Um, and musician. Was it, a foregone conclusion that you would be in entertainment? If anything, it was the opposite really? where I I really I think maybe because I didn't want to be compared to my dad, like I stayed away from TV writing. I really wanted to write books. Like oh, my whole life, that's what I was gonna do. I was gonna write very <laughs> serious novels. <laughs> and, um, and yet it's still a creative endeavor it, and it's yeah. still writing, which is very interesting to me. Absolutely. And I, I even went to graduate school and I during this time I was on Twitter and I started writing things that I didn't know were <laughs> jokes at the time. I was just like, oh here's something I thought. Um, and I didn't even know really how to write a joke. I didn't know how to write a script. Um, but I was finding like the seriousness of my graduate program really sort of dumb. <laughs> like I remember. Was it a graduate program in, in novel writing? Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I went to Cal Arts and everyone just took it so seriously. And, um, I was really enjoying writing things on Twitter more than I was enjoying what I was writing in <laughs> class. And so, uh, 
around that time, my dad got his job working on dads. Um, and right. I kind of knew Alec Sulkin, the showrunner, through Twitter. So I asked my dad, I was like, are they looking for writers? And I hate this part of my story. Like, this is... This is non-replicable part. If I was listening to this, I'd be like, God, this girl has no idea what life is. Um, but it's just the way it happened sure. for me. Um and yeah, I wrote a script for them, and it worked out. And so let me let me stop you here, and I, I apologize. I'm going to interrupt you guys a lot to sort of dig in on some of these details. Um, had you written a script before? I'd written a feature script before, and I think if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have reached out. Uh, but I, w- I had written a feature, and my friend's brother is a manager, and he read it and he liked it, and so I think I felt like maybe I want to veer in that direction because I'm getting much more positive reaction about that than I am about my sure. stories with uh Which you aren't even enjoying writing. Yeah, anyway. exactly. So um, I had never written an episode of television yeah. and I hastily like took a bunch of my jokes off Twitter and came up with a story and put it into – Probably the worst script that's ever been. I, it was. I wouldn't even call it that. It was sort of like very Dada esque. Like it wasn't. In no way was it formatted correctly. But avant-garde television. Yes, it was funny. It was a funny sure. script, and I think uh, you know when you're a staff writer on a comedy and they're mm. looking for hard jokes, that's sort of just what you're there to do. Like mm. I wasn't there on dads to pitch story ideas really, or to like iron out creases i was there as a workhorse to pitch a joke mm-hmm. when it came up albeit i i was pretty quiet the whole time but it uh <laughs> so how long was that a one season show that was a yeah hot one season and you were there for the whole time <laughs> i was there the whole time um did you learn throughout that oh my process gosh. of like how to be in a room and absolutely. what was expected of you absolutely i mean i i look back on it now and i'm like i i should have been fired because i've never you know the staff writers since that i've known are just I'm like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. Like Liz Hara (laughs) came in and she was actually funny. And I was like, oh, that I get it. That's what a comedy writer does. Um, But but you were providing. I mean, your scripts had jokes and people were responding to that. And I was occasionally pitching jokes. But there's just I I came into a room that was half Family Guy writers and half Simpsons writers and really established writers. Uh, Mike Scully, uh, Tom Gamble and Max Pross, who to me are just the kings of comedy writing. They're amazing people to be in a room with. Um, So I I was with people who knew how to pitch a joke. And I think Liz Hara even talked about Mm -hmm. this on her her episode. Like, there's an art to pitching Mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with being a writer. It doesn't come from the same skill set. In fact, if anything, comes from the opposite skill set. Like, I wanted to be a writer because I don't know how to communicate. So <laughs> for me, right. I can do this on the page. Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah. it's that sort of, um, a lot of people were stand up comics too. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, so that was, I, I just did a lot of listening, hard listening. Sure. Yeah. Did you, were you able, was Life in Pieces your next gig? Yeah, it was the next one. Okay. Um, so were you able to take lessons learned from dads to that and, and apply them? Absolutely. Um, okay. And uh, Alex Sulkin, who was the showrunner of dads, actually was part of the reason I got a job on Life in Pieces. So he went over there and I, I went with that. him um, and he was just there for a season. But he has been very helpful to me because I think he is just a 
comedic genius and he's so good at pitching a joke. Hmm. So I've sort of just like listened to him and learned. Uh, a lot of it's just about letting go of humiliation and leaning into it, you mm -hmm. know? Because um, so everyone is in the same boat. I mean, no matter how confident they may absolutely. seem, they're coming from the same place, yeah. I would imagine. Um, so yeah, it's... Uh, it does get a lot easier and you just eventually it's it's more like a sculpture than it is a painting mm -hmm. where you're you're chipping away at your nerves instead of building up a confidence. Right. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, um, I want to pause in the breaking in and talk about this idea of pitching in the room because we've mm -hmm. all done this. Um, and what have you guys learned over the years about how to successfully pitch or confidently pitch? Which may not be the same thing. Um <laughs> You know, it's I. It's been a long time since I had to go in and mm -hmm. pitch a story for an episode for for a number of reasons. One is I've become the guy that gets pitched too, but I pitch all the time to like the studio and the network. Yeah. And um, but usually what I'm pitching is something that I've worked with a bunch of people in in a, in a, in right. a room together. And in fact, I've 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 um, uh, gotten to a place with. Um, the studio and the network that I work with where I don't we, I, I, we internally do outlines like really detailed ones for the writers because I sort of demand them because that's part of the development of the process of the development of the story for me mm -hmm. but what I now do is I, I pitch each episode uh, in real detail to the to the um, studio and the network, hmm. um, usually at the same time, which is good because then they can just give input right away if they have a question. They're not giving notes on on like the pros of the outline right. or something that you didn't describe well enough in the outline that you've spent so much time trying to craft in an outline. And I think it's just like um, it, it's all storytelling. So it's trying to be a good storyteller i think it's trying to you know set up some tension and mm -hmm. make your listener think oh what's going to happen next and have a sense of anticipation and then hopefully land something that's surprising that they that they didn't expect and makes them want to hear the next thing that's going to happen yeah yeah it sounds deceptively simple but a good pitch just has a beginning a middle and yeah. an end yes and that's really hard to l learn to do consistently especially for a young writer just starting out but it's one of the things I dr I kind of drill some of the younger writers on staffs about. It's just like, you know, you can take a beat, think about it, and, and just make sure it has a beginning, middle, end. At the very least, then it's a story. Um, I think even if it's not a whole story whole story right yeah, you, could if you, you could be pitching a you know well you a know scene. a scene you could be pitching a scene yeah, or, mm -hmm. or or trying to convince the showrunner yeah. that that you know this is the next thing yeah. that should happen but even that has to yeah. kind of have a, a beginning middle and an end sort of like right? fractals like a yeah. like a scene a, you know like a a monologue is sort of like a fractal of a scene a scene is like a <laughs> fractal of an act an act is like a fractal of a of a episode of tv and you could say the episode same thing about the season and then the series sure so it's like they all have to have a, a very clear shape pitching is some people are much better at it than others a lot of that has to do with just just some people are just gifted natural storytellers mm -hmm. um do you remember at what point, if yeah, I assume it did at some point, breakthrough for you about how to do this? Uh, no, I think it just crept up on me over <laughs> sure. time. I, I'm still learning. I mean, it's different on every show too. And if if you're running the show, then it's nice you, you get to be pitched to. I've also, you know, so I've done that uh, once or twice, and. Uh, but to like learn a new showrunner's voice or a new studio executive's voice, I mean, in yeah. terms of like, 
to learn their ear rather, like uh, to tailor a story to them, to know just how much English to put on the <laughs> the idea, to just kind of get it by them, you know, through their radar. Uh, it's is a real skill too, and mm -hmm. that that that's helpful. And you know, just to go back to something Ken said before about just room etiquette in general, it's it's just always something I learned from uh, Michael Green and Brian Fuller was uh, to treat, uh, you know. Pitching as though you're in you're in like improv in a way, in insofar as like when someone finishes a pitch, even if it dies like miserably, like you just hear crickets when they're done, to just you know sort of you could turn to them and just say yes and and add your own thing. This way you're not obliterating their pitch. Mm -hmm. um, it's it just keeps the flow of the room going and, and it mm -hmm. saves people from having hurt feelings. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a similar lesson to the one we often hear when we talk about going in to meet a showrunner for a meeting. It's like, even if you don't love the thing, find the thing you love about it. Yeah, there's something to love about everything. Yeah, and then you can sort of build off of that, I imagine, in a pitch. Um, Ken, let's go back to you and talk about uh, how you got started in this business. I have a, you know, a very unusual, I think, story about how I got started. And I think the thing is that everybody has a completely different story. You yeah. know, there's no, people ask me, there's no path. I mean, no. if you want to write, you have to write. But but I, 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 I think that's worth pausing on yeah. for a minute. Like, we cannot say this enough. Yes, if, if you, you want, want to, write, to do you this, to write. you have to just write. Having said that, that's not how I broke in. <laughs> Is that right? Um, yeah, I, I had, you know, I was I was um, at a college. I don't want to date myself too much, but I was working in New York. I, my, my dream was to be Hal Prince. I wanted to, like, produce and direct big Broadway musicals. Like, that was what <laughs> no, I thought, I, you know. And um, and I spent I spent about four years in New York working uh, in the theater, working for a Broadway producer, kind of only semi-successful one. And, and, and I had a little bit of success there, but it became very clear that, like, that was a very difficult way to make a living. And I just made a decision at some point, an incredibly naive decision with no knowledge at all about the movie or film business that I was – this is what you th – the things you decide when you're 25 or 26. I'm going to go to Los Angeles and I'm going to be a producer or a director in maybe movies or maybe television. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I, that was literally my <laughs> thought process. And I and I came to Los Angeles and I was um, – I had – I had I – had, uh, been a, like a, uh, a an associate producer on a on a musical that was playing in Boston that I was getting a, like a little uh, weekly um, uh, uh, draw from like mm -hmm. three or four hundred dollars a week. It was really very little money, and I I rented a car. Uh, and I had a buddy that had also moved out to be an actor, and we spent about two or three months um, couch surfing. That that term didn't exist then, by the way, couch <laughs> surfing. I wish I had coined it. But we 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 just drove around and we stayed with people. You know, we knew actors out here and different people that were trying to make it in the business in different ways. And and there were a bunch of us that kind of all came out at the same time. And I just started to meet and talk to anybody that would talk to me. So there were a few people like from the theater who there was a. Uh, uh, a TV director named Andy Cadiff, and Andy Cadiff um, uh, had been a theater director, so I knew him from New York, and he was working on a on a on a sitcom. I didn't know if I was going to work on it. I did, so I uh, I called him, and he let me observe for a week on his sitcom, and I thought, oh, this will be cool. I'll be a sitcom director. And <laughs> anyway, I just kept having all these. I would anybody I would meet, I would say, do you know anybody that would talk to me? Mm -hmm. And eventually, what happened was I I um I I ended up cold calling. A guy named Jonathan Levin, who at the time was the uh, vice president of drama development at CBS. 
Uh, and because we'd gone to the same school and somebody mm-hmm. said, oh, he went to the same school you went to call him and he, maybe he'll talk to you. He was incredibly – he through through a fluke, his assistant was not at the desk. He answered the phone. <laughs> he was funny. incredibly brusque with me. He said, "What?" I tried to you know spit out who I was. And he said, what, do you want a job? And I said, no, 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 no. I just want to talk to you for five minutes. He said, send me a resume. And he click. He hung up the phone. And it turned out – I didn't know this at the time, but it turned out that he was looking – to hire someone to be the manager of drama series development at CBS. <laughs> and I end, I ended up in a in like a four or five month process trying to get this job. I didn't even know what the job was. I didn't know what that meant. Right. But I'm I'm sort of embarrassed and sort of proud to say that I started my career as like a baby network executive. Wow, that's so I got, I got yeah. this job at CBS. I was manager of drama series development. I spent a year there. I didn't know what a showrunner was. I didn't know how shows were developed. I didn't know how shows were sold. Sure. But what I got to do in that year was sit in a in a room where writers came in to pitch new series ideas. And I sat in the corner and I took notes and then I would write a pitch memo. Hmm. And the people that were coming into the room, this is how old I am, were Stephen Cannell and Aaron Spelling yeah, and all amazing. of these like kind of um, uh, David Milch and all these kind of giants of the business. And I would listen to them pitch their ideas. I would very stupidly open my mouth in the meetings and and, <laughs> and, and point out to them sometimes why the ideas weren't good. And I almost Milch got notes. fired. <laughs> right. But I so I spent a year there. And of course, the other thing I did was I started to read tons of television sure. scripts. And after I was there for about a year, I met Bob Greenblatt, who kind of poached me and took me over to Fox, where I became the director of drama series development, which was like one notch Mm -hmm. up the ladder. And I spent another year there, and I met a whole bunch of other showrunners. And I started to think to myself, okay, I don't know if I'm Tennessee Williams, but I could do this. (laughs) And what I realized was the guys who who were really the producers... In TV, were writers. I didn't know that. Like this was a lesson that I learned. So I thought, okay, this is how I will. It sort of occurred to me at that point that there were probably two really great and also miserable jobs in 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 this business. One would be to direct a feature film, and the other would be (laughs) to be a showrunner. And I thought, oh, this is the way you do it. You have to write. So I ended up um, while I was still working at Fox, I had a a struggling screenwriter friend who's now very successful, Chris Brancato. We went to college (laughs) together, and he and I ended up partnering up and I was kind of ghostwriting with him mm. while I was working at uh, Fox and we ended up because I knew s- some agents and I had met Darren Starr who was developing uh, uh, Melrose Place I ended up sort of having this kind of seamless and lucky transition where Chris and I partnered up and we got hired as a t- as a writing team oh, to be writers on the very on the original nine oh two one up. So that's <laughs> how amazing. Old, so that's how old I am. There's a lot more to that story. And there <laughs> sure. were and there were many more speed bumps after that. Yeah. But I didn't I I have to say I didn't come out here and say I'm gonna be a right. TV writer. Yeah. And which I, I again every one of these stories is unusual. And there are these sort of stumbles into it, whether you set out to yeah. be a writer or not. Um, I'm curious. I, I want to just touch on a couple of things here. So you sort of were a staff writer on these shows yeah. on 90210. Yeah. When did you and Brancato split? So so we, we spent um, – uh, we actually ended up getting a little deal at Spelling, a very small mm-hmm. little deal at Spelling. 
um, which was uh, what they call a one plus one deal. So we basically had um, uh, one year and they had an option to keep us for another year. And we, so Chris and I, uh, wrote on 90210 and then we got fired because, because, um, uh, Chuck Rosen, who was the showrunner, really liked Chris and really didn't like me. And, uh, so we, we, we basically only ended up on that show for a half a season, which was like 14 episodes because yeah. they did like 28 episodes. We wrote three. We got writing wow. credit on three that, that were not really substantially rewritten, but we got, shit canned chris and deserves credit right now for not uh turning this back on you no he does he, in, fact, in, fact, chuck, in fact chuck rosen said to him you Bronco know if you, is a stand-up guy he said if you <laughs> he is a stand-up guy he said if you know if you if you want to just stay on the show without ken yeah. like you can stay yeah. and chris chris said no what? we 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 wrote a couple of pilots they did of course they did not then pick up the second year of our deal so our second year was a real struggle we got a freelance episode of a show at cannell but I can't even remember what it was called now. But it was it was Lorenzo Lamas on a motorcycle. Great. And we wrote an episode of that that they thought was so bad that they didn't make it. And by that point, there was like a, you know, Chris and I are best friends now. But like there was a lot of like, you know, creative sure. and just personal tension going on. And we basically ended up splitting up. And I decided, okay, I'm going to try to. I'm going to make a I'm going to make a short film now. That's what okay. I'm going to do. So I was scrounging around money and I had a little script and I was trying to make a short film, but I couldn't I couldn't get it going. And I ended up cuz I needed some money uh, and I had become very good friends with Renee Echevarria because Renee, who uh, for people, for your listeners who don't know, a very mm-hmm. successful writer, Renee um, was writing on The Next Generation on Star Trek. Yeah. I didn't know anything about Star Trek. I mean, I, of course, I'd seen like the Star Trek movies and I knew who Captain Kirk was. But um, his his now ex-wife and my now ex-girlfriend were really good friends. And so that's so Renee and I became friends. And he, I was I was broke. I needed some money. And he told me, well, you know, they're starting up a third series called Voyager next year, and they're hiring some writers to do freelance scripts. Mm-hmm. If you have a piece of material, I'll give it to the showrunner. So he gave a script that I had written and maybe a short story that I had written the to Pillar that was running. That well, it was season. Pillar, but he gave it to Jerry Taylor, mm-hmm. uh, who co created the show with Pillar and Rick Berman. Mm-hmm. And they read the, she read the script and she said, oh, great, you, uh, we'll, we'll have you write an episode. And I thought, oh, this is, this is great. I'll get my $15,000 or whatever it is and, and then I'll go back and use right. the money to try to make my short film. And I, did, I, I was really naive about Star Trek. I, I, so, but I thought, well, now, now what do I do? I, I have to um, – they, they actually gave me a story, like a story area, mm-hmm. something they already knew they wanted sure. to do. Which was not – again, not unusual for freelance yeah. uh, and And then um, they – so I, I, I just said I have to read 100 Star Trek scripts. So I got all these scripts and I started reading them and I, and I, I read a, um, uh, a two-hour uh, episode that Michael Piller had written and I thought – Wow, this is really good. I had no idea this was so good and so interesting and and really like about something. And then I just did what you're supposed to do, which is I tried like hell to imitate mm-hmm. the these scripts that I was writing. Sure, which this was, was the voice of the show. This was the voice yeah. of the show. And when I turned it in, they said, "Oh, this is great. You must have a science background." And I literally <laughs> never took a science course. In <laughs> um, I, and it was basically just because I was a good imitator. Mm-hmm. And, which is so much of the job, I, and they and they offered on. and they offered me a staff job, mm-hmm. which I almost turned down because I really thought oh, I'm going to make my short film. But I, of course, I took it, and um, 
and ended up, you know, staying on that show. And by the last season of the show, I was the showrunner. Yeah, this is, I mean, I'm looking, 95 to 01 was yeah. that show, and you did like 50 episodes. Yeah, and all, I mean, well, we, we did 172 episodes right. of the, but you of were the show. You, yeah. you were credited on. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I think I was credited like as a story editor or something yeah. on, on all but three because I left at a certain point for a very brief time to do another project, and then I came back. But um, And I will say, you know, I, I loved it at first. By like the third season, all I could think of was, oh, I got to get off this and I got to do something else. Uh, and, and and looking back, you know, you realize if you're lucky enough to get on a show that's really good and <laughs> right. and and has legs, you know, just stay on yeah, it. And, absolutely. And so it gave me a lot of opportunities. You know, I ended up starting to direct and you know yeah. and and all of that. Um, all all on all on that show. So that's amazing. Yeah. Um, David, let's let's talk about your breaking in. Um, well, it's funny because I remember sitting yeah. on my grandmother's couch in Brooklyn watching some of the episodes Ken and Michael wrote on Star Trek. No way. Yeah. Uh, How funny. This, I mean, look, if you're a working class guy out there, you do have a chance to write in television. <laughs> uh, I I started writing when I was like 10 years old, just love comics, love Greek mythology, um, but didn't think I had a shot in hell of writing professionally. And I, uh, I, I worked as a handyman in New York for a while. I was a nanny, a male nanny uh, for, uh, for a family in, in Midtown. And... I, I had a lot of writing samples. I never took the SATs and a lot of writing samples. And I just submitted them to the dra dramatic writing program mm -hmm. at NYU. And I got in. What what were the, were these plays? Yeah, they, they were short stories and just all kinds of stuff, like though. little things that okay. I had written down. Some poetry, just like an odd collection of things that I had just written over a bunch of years. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, and I got in and and so I, I spent a couple of years at NYU. Uh, and focused on playwriting. At that point in time, the dramatic pr writing program there didn't have much of a TV writing program. Mm -hmm. They had uh, plays and, and then you could do, do uh, features. And I figured, uh, you know, I lived in New York, so why not do playwriting? And I, got, I had the good fortune to be in a master class that Tony Kushner taught. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a play while I was there, a short play. And I worked on it a little bit. And then I graduated. And I got a job. I, I took a bunch of typing tests. And I was trying to figure out, well, how the fuck do you become a writer? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's by taking typing tests. Yeah, I, just thought, I thought, like, <laughs> maybe sure. I'll work in a temp office somewhere. I'll, I, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, But New York really does not give a shit about you. It's not going to hand you anything. And so I, I got this job. I had... I went to trade school after high school and I was a handyman for a while and, and I had some sculptural ability. To, I was welding furniture in my grandmother's garage as I was trying to figure my life out. And so I saw this ad in the in the Village Voice for this company called Spath Design. And they had basically a shop that built the mechanical dolls for the Saxon Lord and Taylor windows. And I applied there and I got this job and they needed a guy that could put gears together in a way that would animate latex dolls <laughs> and make like Scrooge open window and hold right. up a lantern and look both ways and stuff. So I did that for a while. And, and I was in that shop and I really fucking loved it. I, I thought like, maybe I'll just build animatronics for the rest of my life. There was uh, uh, the Henson shop was mm -hmm. nearby and I was kind of angling to get a job there. And I took that play and I sent it off to Louisville theater a year earlier uh, and just, forgot about it. I got denied. Like they hmm. just flatly rejected it. So I was just working and I was in the shop welding some mechanical crocodile played accordion <laughs> uh, one day. And, and I was thinking like, what the fuck is my life going to be like? Like, like I thought 
I'll be like Paul Auster. Like I'll just write. I'll, I started right. in prose. I'm going to write novels. None of them are going to get published. Uh, you know, for the first ten years or whatever, and then I'll get like one or two published, and then I'll go teach. And and like literally about a week later, I got a call from uh, the 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 theater in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, that has this um, Humana, Humana Festival. Humana yeah. And I got a call from the literary manager that, no, the call was from my dad. So I'm in the welding <laughs> shop, grinders were going off, uh, I'm filthy. And my dad goes, look, and I wasn't living anywhere at the time. I was like crashing on my girlfriend's couch. I was living with my mom, living with my grandmother. I was just kind of like a uh, uh, bon vivant. And, <laughs> All right. And, and, let's, let's use that. There yeah. are other words. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so my dad said, hey, there's this piece of mail here. It's been sitting here for like four months, five months. I think you should, uh, I, 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 I was worried that grandma was going to throw it out. So I opened it and it, it sounds like this guy's trying to really get in touch with you. And I, I was like, what's the number? And I, I called the number and it was the literary manager at the theater in Louisville. And the guy was like, wait a second. I was like, hey, this is David Graziano. He goes, wait a second, what's your name? And, and he, the people in the office were very happy to hear that uh, they, they finally got in touch with <laughs> right. me. And they told me I won this prize that I had applied to the year before. And what happened was a couple of the actors in the theater in Louisville, they, they had this actor's repertory. They chose this play, they performed mm -hmm. it. And it actually got some laughs and, sure. and did well. People noticed it so, when it wasn't just, yeah, when so they this, just reading it. Reading this, hundreds of them. This the beautiful, beautiful literary manager resubmitted my play that year and, it, and it won the, the prize there. And then I, I got an agent off of that. I got some, you know, sort of uh, press. Mm -hmm. And I just left Louisville with like two shopping bags full of business cards. And I, <laughs> I, I realized like, I can't fuck this up. Like this is like a once in a lot time, sure. lifetime opportunity. And I, were you prepared for it? Like, did you know what you wanted to do? No, like, what, you couldn't. You couldn't know what the next steps I was, were. Um, but did you know at least where you wanted? There to were be? a couple of TV execs that went down there that uh -huh. were like sort of theater mavens, and and they they were like, hey, you should come out and and come you know, meet up. The staffing season is going to be happening. I was like, what the fuck, staffing season? <laughs> and they were like, you should you know just come meet around town and and sort of see you know if you can get something off the ground. So I I. I flew out to LA not knowing anybody. My family was trying to talk me out of it. They were like, "You're, you're, you're. You should just take the cop test." And <laughs> and it's I, good to have that support. I, I had a bunch of meetings. I maxed out my credit card living in a mm -hmm. hotel in uh, Beverly Hills. I don't know why I thought that would be a good idea. Like some cheap, cheap, cheap hotel in Beverly Hills. I think Hills. I stayed in that hotel in Beverly Hills. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. The, what was it called? The Crescent. Or yeah, the Crescent. Like it was on a, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, I, yeah, that's where I stayed when I very first came to LA. It was great. It was a cheap hotel in yeah, Beverly Hills. Yeah, and it was, it was great. Yeah, like the slums of Beverly Hills. That and, movie. and then, like, through a bunch of meetings, like, I somehow. Sarah Timberman, who was married, who's an executive out here, was married to Ed Redlick at the time. He had just gotten on to Felicity as the showrunner. She was like, you should go sit down with my husband. So the next day I sat down with Ed and I guess he liked our conversation. So 10 minutes later, I was sitting down in a 32-year-old J.J. Uh, Abrams office <laughs> and I talked to him for like a half an hour. We had a great meeting and he was like, uh, this was like a Thursday. And he was like, uh, okay, great. You start Monday. And, and I, I kind of left. I was like, what the fuck? I flew home. My family did not believe it. I, I got a, I bought a shitty car, like a $3,000 mm -hmm. Nissan Sentra and drove cross country in three days. It started oh on Monday. God. 
and had no walking, fucking idea. Yeah, you're walking into this room. You have no idea what the last it is, place right? I worked was a welding shop. <laughs> right. So it was it was a steep learning curve for me. Like no one in my family had really ever even worked in a like a white collar office. So it was yeah. like bizarre. I didn't even have anyone I could call and sort of say, "Hey, what are you supposed to do?" Right. So <laughs> so what? And and I I've I talk in the intro to this sure. podcast how I love Felicity. Uh, uh-huh. It was formative for me, <laughs> for sure. But it was—it's such a great show, and it feels like the right kind of show for you to be walking into because you—it was you fun to draw on your own experiences. Yeah, it, it's based I graduated on from NYU like yeah. a year or two earlier, and it was just character based, and it was just interesting to play in that world. So, how did you find yourself fitting in to that room? And were these—you know—were they a lot of new writers like you? Were they a lot mostly of very seasoned writers? Seasoned writers. Really? Yeah, and and I didn't fit in. It was it was a steep <laughs> learning curve. I bet. It took it took me about three of my first years in Hollywood as a working TV writer to just get my feet under me and figure out how to function in a room, how to you know interact with my agent or executives and just figure it out. Figure mm. out the the grammar of just kind of being a TV writer. Yeah, and. Was it the kind of thing where once you left, what do you remember what the next job was? I got on a show. It was a cop show. It was a ill-fated oh, right. cop show called, uh, I think it was called uh, Jack. Something first year, right? Yeah, something, something like that. first year. It was yeah, guy's we'll, name. We'll I can't, look it up. I'm blanking on it. Yeah, it was a uh, one season thing. I had to look yeah. it up because I remember it being advertised, but I don't remember yeah, the show Yeah, but all. it came and went. But, but, but did you feel like coming out of... Felicity, like you that was a lower pressure environment to learn in because the show was like, you know, it was it was to and out, but we had to finish out some of the episodes. So it was like it took the pressure of performance anxiety, which I think I Mm -hmm. suffered from in the beginning because I I felt like I was constantly floating in the corner of the room monitoring myself just to make sure I didn't say anything (laughs) embarrassing or stupid. I was I was I was till you learn to accept. I felt horrible about my accent too. Like I had a thick, thick Brooklyn accent and I just felt like I sounded stupid. And so like (laughs) it was it was an easier place for me to um, sort of learn and sort of get my feet under me a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then I I got a job with David Greenwald and on a show called Miracles Mm -hmm. and and that everything sort of I got my feet under me then. And Mm -hmm. and And did you feel like I don't know who the showrunners were on these previous shows, but with Greenwald, did you feel like you started to understand the job or, or the show, well, what he, show running was. And- he mentored me a little bit. Yeah. Like he took a liking to me. He had just gotten off of, I met on Buffy. Mm-hmm. They wanted to hire me on Buffy. And then it was angel. Yeah. He but was, I met uh, with all the Buffy guys. Angel. Yeah. But it was like, it was odd. You went and sat down with the writer's room to see how oh, you right. fit dynamically oh, with them. What? Yeah. And I would, I spent like an hour with them That's just, awful pitching to guys so very intimidating guys like joss and tim Minear and, mm-hmm. and and just trying to like you know do a dance to impress them and and like i think they were interested in hiring me an angel but david greenwald was like he i think he left like a week later two weeks later he left his own show which people didn't think he would do and he went to go run a show called miracles and he he took me over there with him oh, and and I just I was happy to have a mentor because that's what mm-hmm. I was looking for. That's what I needed at the time. Absolutely. And uh, you know he was he was a really good uh, mentor to have because he he if anyone knows David Greenwald he he doesn't pull punches. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. And it sounds like all of you guys sort of had that similar experience where there was someone who could sort of show you the ropes, and maybe it took a little time to find that someone. Yeah. But you know between Pillar and it's Sulkin important. and Greenwald, like you had someone who yeah. Could it's funny, Michael. You know, help you adjust. M- Michael was. Um, 
Michael was a mentor in a in a way, you mm-hmm. know. Um, well, sort I think of, he was to a lot of people to a lot of people show. in terms of like, uh, you know, he was a teacher in ter- mm-hmm. and and he pulled no punches either. He 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 sometimes lacked some social graces, uh, but he uh, was he was very encouraging, and he was um, and and really just taught me and many other people uh uh the craft mm-hmm. of breaking a story because it really yeah. is a craft and there's different ways to approach it and i've absolutely you know adapted um to various circumstances and i'm not so yeah. doctrinaire about using the michael pillar method mm-hmm. as i was when i you know went to the f- my first show after that where i was kind of running the room for a while which yeah. was on smallville and i was very rigid when i first got to smallville like this is the way we have to do it but yes you you do need it's certainly helpful to have yeah. someone to to show you the ropes yeah. and I, I i i i'm very grateful for that but i'm also grateful now that i have a bunch of writers that i've maybe uh Performed yeah. that service yeah. for it's nice that I'm very loyal that, to, yeah. who yeah. are very loyal to me, and it's that's yeah. uh, that's a real fun part of the job for yeah. me is to, you know, um, now that I'm an old guy, right. <laughs> um, it guys, is nice to mentor. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's so helpful, and it, it's it's you know helping to put these younger writers or newer writers at ease is is a big part of getting having a successful show i think um guys take a break i'm gonna talk to maggie about comedy okay. uh, and then we're gonna wrap up it's very different i feel like this table <laughs> is like bifurcated a little bit we won't have it uh <laughs> we can all write anything um but i want to i'm curious to hear uh like you've had these influences in your life um, yes. and you're still very young uh, thank you so much <laughs> did you hear that america <laughs> but do you feel like you have develop your own comedic voice and how how did can you sort of take me through that journey of finding it if you have um yes and no i i think i'm still on that journey um i think part of that is learning what you find funny um but i never thought i would be a comedy writer and it's odd because i actually watch when i watch television i never watch comedy i Mm -hmm. only watch drama and you know i hear that documentaries every yeah it's interesting a lot of documentaries (laughs) a lot of just like anything to depress me um (laughs) but that's comedy um i but like what was the stuff that growing up you responded to and then how did that how did you discover new things? And, you know, I'm, I'm always curious about what, like, what feeds the comedy brain. Um, yes, I think deep insecurity. And I mean, I, 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 I mean, that is <laughs> a joke. Right. And I also don't because yeah. it's, you know, we talk about it a lot, but it's, it's being ahead of the joke. It's quickness. Like, to mm. me, comedy is about, like, economy and quickness. And if you can, what you can say, like, the quicker, the shorter, the better, the funnier, you know, um, and I think, you know, m- most comedy writers I know, there's something weird with their mother or there's a body issue, um, sometimes like all of the above. But <clears throat> it's, I think one of the most interesting things is like when you do it professionally, it becomes a very like serious business. Mm-hmm. And um, when I come home, I find that like 
David is the funnier one and I'm more, (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of like sour and exhausted. And so, um, I kind of like put it all into the job and, uh, But as far as like finding a voice, I watched a lot of animation as a kid. And I think I lean towards that when Mm. I'm thinking of something that's funny. Um, So Life in Pieces was interesting for me um, because it's a family show. I have a very small family. I'm an only child. Like there's three of us. Not a whole lot of um, drama, at least like (laughs) laid out on the table. (laughs) A lot of like, you know, sort of. Stuff Not going a lot on, of yeah, a lot building under the right. surface. That doesn't um, make for good comedy. <laughs> but uh, so that was interesting in learning how to write a joke that's real. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think it that's much more like conversational joke writing, and it's sort of like when you're at lunch with someone and someone says something and you say something funny, right. and it, it's that's sort of the job. But. Yeah. Um, now but it's not hard jokes like you get on it's Family not Guy, hard like you get jokes. On the Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's more situational. And I actually found I was like, you know what? I don't think I'm good at this. Like, really? I, I, I can do it after three years, but um, I going to Family Guy, I suddenly realized like, oh right, like because this is how my brain works when hmm. it's writing comedy. And it's interesting. I forget exactly what you had said about your writing advice was like, what would the character do next? But for comedy, it's a very, I haven't figured it out, but there's a different rule because Mm -hmm. uh, the character, especially animation, like a character can do anything. An elephant can walk in the room wearing a pink hat and, you know, sit on the character. And that's not necessarily what the character would do next, but that's the right thing for, you know, whatever the moment. Um, So, I don't know what my voice is. People reach out to me a lot as like a depressive. <laughs> um, so like I do cartoons. You got your brand. <laughs> I, I think that might be my my brand. I do cartoons for um, Glamour magazine right. and like New Yorker and a the lot of times. second you get happy, your career is just going to tank. I know you've you've been terrible for me in that way. Well, you'll but, see um, that. <laughs> I yeah I. I guess that's that's my voice. I, I don't really know. And a lot of people, I think, right now are looking for me to be like, well, I have like a woman's story to tell. Mm-hmm. But I don't really think of it that way. So anything I tell is, is going to be a woman's story because sure. it's mine. Um, yeah. But I, I wouldn't say like my voice is uh, attached to that. Mm-hmm. Um And I think a lot of writers are kind of like looking for that angle sometimes. And sometimes it's not about that. It's just about writing well. So absolutely. I think that's that's important. I don't think I gave you like a single answer. No, I think there are a lot of interesting pieces in there, though, that I think are worth, you know, the listener sort of taking apart. But it feels like uh, and I've been following you on Twitter for a while that like Twitter is the perfect avenue for your voice. Yeah, I do. I do like Twitter. It's easy to like self-deprecate on there um people just love it so (laughs) so um that's a good forum for me um and i I would say like i tend to lean blue with my comedy Mm -hmm. i lean i've said this many times people are gonna walk away being like this girl's like into weird shit but i i'm very like uh 
digestive. Like I like jokes about digestion. I don't know about the body. You're the Cronenberg of comedy. Kind of. I'm very interested in the grotesque. Like, and so I lean that What's way. What's the honesty of the human situation that we all that's, just? I think that's true. Yeah. Are just yeah. disgusting. Gross meat in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is not an inch of my body that's like mm, there's something not wrong about it. Like every inch of my body, there's like. Sure. Carbuncle or whatever, but <laughs> so there's a there's fodder. You don't even ha- you know you just don't have to leave your body. Look in the mirror, <laughs> right. and you too can write comedy. Um, horrific, absolutely horrific. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I want to wrap up by asking you guys what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about in your home, in your room? Uh, David, let's start with you. We just binged the terror, and yeah, I thought it was like terror. a really finely crafted show. I don't know what season two is, but. It's it, they did, just did a bang up job. So, yeah. whoever out there created and is staffed on the terror, good on you. Go listen to uh, the episode from a couple months I ago will, when I, I have the creators. I'll have to do that. They're great. Yeah. I'm going to make a shocking confession, which is that I never watched Breaking Bad, and I started this week, and I awesome. just finished the first season, and uh, I have a little bit of time. And oh, I'll, you lucky bastard! My son, watch that for the first time. I know, again. My my fifteen year old son just binged the whole thing, and he's like, "Dad, I cannot believe that yeah. you've never watched this." And he's, of course, the fiftieth person to it's say that to right. me. And I've just never really had the time, and I have a little time now, and I've decided I'm gonna Amazing. I'm gonna That's spend great. it on uh, Breaking Bad. So I'm I'm, I'm excited to get. To so let me that. ask you: yeah. during the uh, platinum age of TV, which we're just coming out of, yeah. uh, when Breaking Bad was sort of the peak of that yeah what what were you watching because i think so many of us were inspired oh, by like Breaking i mean bad and Mad Men I, and seeing what was being done on on those shows i mean i watched some i mean i watched some of the i watched some of that stuff i mean there were a lot of things where i um would watch the first season but then mm-hmm. you know didn't uh right. you know didn't get um uh all the way through it but the, the truth is that um i read a lot of scripts so I, by the way I, like i had read the pilot of sure. breaking bad um, but to be honest, I watched, I watched a lot of Daily Show, and mm-hmm. uh, um, especially when Jon Stewart was on, although I still watch it, and I watch a lot of sports because mm-hmm. that's you know fun to watch on TV. I have a wife who's encyclopedic. She watches everything. So really? I've seen a lot of episodes of various shows, and she's got a really great barometer uh, about – you know what? You know what's working on television, and you know what's good and what oh, isn't. So you know, I watched Mad Men. Uh, I watched the first season of Mad Men, and then I, you yeah. know, I didn't. I, I didn't. Right. I didn't decide not to watch the second season. I just didn't get to of it. Of course. So I have. I have a bunch of those kind of shows. But so yeah, of course, I I loved The Sopranos. You know, to me that was really in some ways kind of the that was before streaming, mm-hmm. and but kind of the. First yeah. show that really changed television for me. Yeah. Actually, that's not true. The first show that changed television for me is um, uh, Hill Street Blues. Hill Street Blues. You're welcome. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely Hill Street Blues. Uh, yeah, which again, it comes up every now and again on this podcast. And for younger listeners, it's it is canon. worth looking for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that and NYPD, NYPD Blue. Blue. Yeah, yeah I mean, huge. just the just the idea that you could take these these you know cops who were ubiquitous on yeah. every television show and turn them into real people with really complicated stories and lives and and tell the internal stories of like 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 the bad guys like you know yeah. like the drug dealers were just as interesting as the cops yeah. and it wasn't you know, full of tropes and uh, just yeah. didn't ring hollow it, it, it was, was creating such, the tropes. It, it was yeah. such an such an amazing show and and we yeah we lost a great this yeah, year with that's uh, true with Botchko. I, I was I, I got to meet him once standing in line for a, a celebrity <laughs> event and that's I, great. I, I geeked out it's amazing. <laughs> of course I feel like every writer yeah. must have when meeting him uh, Maggie what are you watching 
Um, well, Dave and I lived together, so we watched the you terror. You had to watch the terror. Um, but when it comes to, if I could think of like a show that I, I love, I love Fargo. I think it's, I think Fargo oh, yeah. season Fargo's two is, if yes. it is a perfect season of television and probably the best thing I've ever seen on TV. Um, I stand by Legion. I know people feel <laughs> Who like, wouldn't love Legion? Well, people, people are very upset about the sort of like circuitous storytelling nature. And for me, it's what I love about it. Like I feel schizophrenic when I watch that show. And I, yeah. I think that's the point is yeah. you're supposed to feel like this character. And I just think it's an amazing feat of storytelling. I think Noah Hawley's a genius. I think everything he does, he's telling like two stories at once. And yeah. I... I can't get enough of those shows. I so. have a theory about Legion, um, which my writing partner makes fun of me for. But I think if enough television writers are watching Legion, it's going to change the way television is written. Because yeah. it is, I think it's the, if not the first, it's the biggest purely subjectively told show, <laughs> which is fascinating. And I've seen it a couple places yeah. now since then. Uh, but Legion is the one that sort of is doing it best. Yeah. Uh, and I hope... I hope it catches on because it's a neat way to watch a story. Yeah, I, I think we were talking about this the other yeah. day, but I, I kind of like things like that, especially when I like used to read books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when they were when they like forced um, the reader to have a sort of dialogic, na- you know, relationship to yep. the actual story. So then you, as a viewer, are informing what you're watching, yeah. and it's almost it's like smell vision. You know, like there's an interaction <laughs> happening and. Yeah. And it's a little uncomfortable. It's, it's not the way we're used yeah. to watching. TV, you're not able to really fold laundry, and too. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's because I'm on the comedy side. So to me, I can watch those shows and be totally in awe of them, mm-hmm. you know, because they seem like impossible creations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love it. Yeah. yeah. That's a great recommendation. I have to give a shout out to Veep, though. I mean, if we're sure. talking about comedies that are brilliant, you know, that show is consistently, to me, brilliant every every time I watch it. Yeah, I, we are, I think, getting to a – the a, comedy is catching up to what the sort of prestige yeah. drama was yeah. five Atlanta years ago. Atlanta is amazing. Yeah, we're doing comedy. It's great. Better Things is fantastic. Yeah. Um, guys, thank you for being here. Uh, this was a lovely conversation. I hope you all come back and Super chat with fun. us again. Thanks thank for you so us. much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Writers' Panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand-new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review the Writers Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.